You probably know him from the famous recruiting posters of 1914. His stern eyes and huge walrus moustache are very striking. Your country needs you, it says, as his finger points directly at you. But who was this man who persuaded millions of men to volunteer to fight the Germans? Like so many great British soldiers, his story begins in Ireland, born in County Kerry in 1850. His military career was nearly over before it began when he got into trouble for volunteering to serve alongside the French in the Franco-Prussian War. Later, as a royal engineer, he built an early reputation as a surveyor in Palestine. In the 1880s, he was promoted and spent a long time working with the Egyptian army. Fluent in Arabic, he quickly climbed up the ranks, leading many dangerous missions deep into the Sudanese desert. He went on to command the Anglo-Egyptian army at the Battle of Omdurman, and then, in 1900, he took over command of the British forces in South Africa, still busy fighting the Boers. After helping to negotiate the end of the war, he became Commander-in-Chief in India and oversaw the reform of the Indian Army. At the start of World War I, he was appointed Secretary of State for War, an incredibly important position. It was he who predicted a long war and the need for a huge army. He was the man Britain needed to help them to prepare for the horror of modern war. He's sometimes a controversial figure and a real man of mystery, but today we're going to try and find out who really was Herbert Kitchener and why was he so important. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History YouTube and Podcast, the place for people who love military history. People like Ken Ray, who I recently met online thanks to the show and our shared love of history, and I hope we get to meet face to face one day. Today I'm joined by Anne Sampson, author of the book Kitchener, The Man Not the Myth. The book is available from Helion Books, and if you hang around until later in the episode, I'll be giving out a discount code that will help you to save 20% on the price of her book. I started off by asking Anne to tell us about Kitchener's early years in the army. He'd already decided he was going into the military. He started being a soldier and he wasn't going to go into the cavalry because he didn't, which was one of his preferred routes, um, because he didn't have to pay for a horse. Um, cavalry, as I understand, you had to pay for all of your equipment and the upkeep of your, your horse. Um, whereas if he went into the Royal Engineers, he wouldn't have to worry about that. Um, why he chose the engineers over any of the others, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't been able to work that out, but I think it's because he, he was a very mathematical, logical kind of person, um, which worked really well in surveying. Um, and he also had a flair for photography, apparently. Um, he was well known at Woolwich for having taken photographs, um, which apparently is part of the reason why he was asked to go on the Palestine Exploration Fund uh, for, for that skill. And he enjoyed doing things like surveys and um, you know, logistical type things. So I think being an engineer just fitted in with, with where he was. How he ended up serving with the Franco-Prussian War um, was by chance. His dad was still in France, had married um, another woman, mom having died, and Kitchener went over to see dad 
dad thought this is an opportunity that can't be missed and organized for Kitchener to join um, Chansey's army. Um, and this was between him having finished his studies and before his commission came through. Uh, so he joined, and it's a bit vague as to what he actually did. There were two of them who had taken up the opportunity. One is that he was an ambulance driver, and in amongst all of that, he ended up going in a hot air balloon, one of the first British soldiers who ended up in a hot air balloon over a battlefield. Again, there's another theme coming through here where he could see um, a different way or how technology as it was then could be of use on, on the battlefield. The story goes that he contracted pneumonia, fell ill, and ended up coming back to Britain um, at the same time that his commission had come through. And as a result, he was therefore contravening international military law in that he was now a British officer um, fighting in the French army. And that could have caused a huge problem. He was wrapped over the knuckles by the commander in chief at the time, who I think was the Duke of Gloucester. Um, I always get these muddled up. Um, but commander in chief. What, what, what a start to your career in the army to be wrapped over the knuckles by the commander in chief on day one. Absolutely. And he was threatened with losing his commission and told not to do it again because had it been the commander in chief in that position, he would have done exactly the same thing. Um, so just don't go and do it again. And I think that's another very defining moment for Kitchener when you look at his later career, where he would play very tough um, and be almost ruthless, which is a lot of the reputation we have of him. But behind the scenes was actually incredibly understanding um, of human nature. And uh, can you just give us a brief, brief overview of those next few years and, and how they helped set him up for his future achievements? Yeah, um, I think those are, well, again, those are the making years of, of Kitchener. He spends about four years in what is today Israel, Palestine, um, Middle East, Iraq, Iran, uh, Jordan area, then known as Palestine. And his task is to map the territory. He's working with a chap called Conda, Henry Conda, who's in charge. Um, and they pretty much living out with the Bedouin in, in the desert, which is bringing him into contact with um, Arabs and Jews. So he's, um, he learned Hebrew with Conda back in Britain. Uh, oh. Yeah, because he was what they were trying to do was tie up biblical sites as well with what was known and the current and, and the territory as it was. So, and they needed Hebrew for that. Um, so he learned Hebrew, but then the majority of the people he was meeting with were um, Arabic speakers. So up in the field, he, he learned Arabic as well. Um, and he, apparently the maps that he compiled um, are still the basis for the maps we use today. He identified something like 400 new locations um, that hadn't appeared on maps before. He corrected spellings. He had very innovative ways of getting the correct um, enunciation, so correct a, a standardized spelling or name of places um, where they were known, um, but then came up with about another 400 more. Um, and it's really fascinating reading what he's written about it. Um, 
because he says if you stand in this very in this spot and you look out this way and that way with what you could see then and um, that those were where the walls of Jericho would probably have been which fell down uh, and it and it's really insightful how and how you can see his mind working with triangulating information um, from you know two three thousand if not more years before with what he's being faced with at, at the time because of his knowledge of Hebrew and his awareness and learning of Arabic and living with the communities, he has now picked up aspects of Islam as well. And he is using that to help support minority groups um, to kind of stand their ground. Um, he can't tackle things directly, but he does use that to, to help them get a bit more of a, um, a fair, fair treatment. Um, there is a case where they end up in a, a conflict and he is quite severely injured. Um, Konda, he actually rescues Konda um, and they evacuate the territory until peace is sort of, sort of restored. He goes back and in terms of the punishment that's being meted out to the, um, the vigilantes as they probably were, he actually cautions and asks for the minimum. Um, because he realizes that you have to live and work with people um, and he understands the background, but sufficient um, pressure needs to be placed that they know they can't get away with it. So there's this mediation that, that goes on. From there, he eventually takes over uh, the Palestine Exploration Fund. Condor ends up having to stay behind. He also took the opportunity when it was leave time not to come back to Britain, uh, but would go off to wherever he knew there were other conflicts happening. So the, the Russo-Turkish um, war was on at some point during that time. Um, he went off to go and see what he could see. There was conflict in the Balkans. He went off on another trip to go and see that. Um, and then- Sound like great holidays. Absolutely, for some. Um, <laughs> came back late because of travel arrangements and had to kind of sweet talk his way around all of, you know, all of that. Um, coming back late for travel arrangements, how much was of his own making because he actually wanted to stay longer and how much was genuine um, issue with travel, mute point. Uh, but he, he, made, he made it work. I think that's the thing about him is he, he, he got himself into sticky situations and he got himself out of them. Uh, and that period in in the Middle East is crucial from, from that perspective. I understand he was then, after a brief foray to Cyprus, sent to Egypt, where his career really began to take off. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take us back a bit to Cyprus before we go to Egypt, because that's quite crucial in him getting to Egypt. In Cyprus, he comes up against his bet noir, um, Wolseley. Uh, Wolseley is commander-in-chief at the time of Cyprus, or head of the army in Cyprus, and Kitchener is supposed to be doing a mapping exercise of, of the place. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, we're talking about Sagan at Wolseley, is that correct? Thank you, yes, yep. The very model of a modern major general, that guy. Sounds the right man. Um, and he and Kitchener clash because Kitchener wants to do more than what he's asked for because that's the proper thing to do. And Wolseley won't have it because the funds aren't there. Kitchener is also wanting to raise a local Cypriot army and train them. 
and Wolseley will not have that. They have to be British troops. Um, and the conflict between the two of them gets so tense that the High Commissioner, Biddulph, um, decides, and who's also head of the survey community, um, project, decides to send Kitchener away from Cyprus and sends him to Anatolia in um, Ottoman Empire, where he is an agent, consul agent, for about eight months. And in that period, he also learns Turkish. Uh, As you do, why not? Why not? Um, and we only know that because he writes a report later on in Turkish to prove to the, the Sultan um, that his Turkish had come on. Um, but again, there he's fighting for the rights of those who are being um, downtrodden. He comes back after Wolseley has been sent to South Africa um, to uh, with one of the Zulu wars there. Uh, I'll leave that to the experts. Uh, but it's then safe enough for Kitchener to go back to Cyprus. And in amongst this, the conflict is starting to take place in Egypt, and he is feeling very left out of it. And so he organizes that he takes leave illegally um, to go and see what's happening in Egypt. He just forgets to um, send in the documents that he's meant to send in, send in and get permission. He yeah, um, is able to see what's going on, makes contact with people and ends up back in Cyprus. And as a result of that, the people, um, Evelyn Wood in Egypt, um, puts in a request for Kitchener to go to Egypt, which um, they don't want to release or allow from Cyprus's point of view because Kitchener hadn't played the game. Um, but eventually Kitchener is sent across and he's offered the only position uh, which nobody wants as um, in the Egyptian army. So he's not in a British unit, he's posted to an Egyptian unit which has seen a second class, uh, not good for one's career. But he makes it. He makes it work. So, um, yeah, and he's he's then head of. Um, he has to train the Egyptian cavalry. So he recruits for the Egyptian army, and he's training the cavalry, which obviously brings him into conflict with the British cavalry units who are out in Egypt as well. So how does how does he use this fairly unpromising start in many ways to build such a great career? What what do we learn about him during this period? And how does he take this disadvantage of being attached to the Egyptian army and, and manage to make it work? I think this is where he works on proving that um, it's skills and knowledge and what you can do as opposed to who you know and your background. Um, he keeps very much to himself. He's very, very aloof. Um, and I can understand that in terms of his experiences in the Middle East, um, where you don't have many people around you. So he, he doesn't go into the, um, the British canteen spaces or social areas. He prefers going into the Egyptian market areas and meeting with the locals because he can sit comfortably, he can speak the language, etc. So he's already aloof on that front. He is, um, in training the Egyptian army, he's, I think he sees the capabilities of the local forces. Um, you know, he, he's, he's lived with these people, he knows them, he develops them. Um, 
and he sees what they are able to achieve. But more than that, he he quietly just gets on with the job and ends up, um, he's also surveying um, the Dead Sea area and Suakin, et cetera. So he's building up this knowledge base, which will eventually work in his favor. And he, he ends up um, with Gordon just outside. He's one of the, he's an intelligence agent um, just outside within a day's march of Khartoum when Gordon is killed. And Kitchener is busy writing. He's able to get men into Khartoum to get messages from Gordon, which are being sent back to London. And he's completely ignored. Um, and by all accounts, Kitchener believes he could have saved Gordon. But because of all this other stuff with Wolsey, et cetera, um, he's, not, he's not allowed. Um, and he feels very, very bitter about that. In the process at the Battle of Abu Clay, and this is very crucial, um, a, a very good friend of his, Stuart, is killed uh, in a battle that Kitchener felt, or in, in an encounter that Kitchener felt could have been avoided. What is significant about that is that a, a journalist and MP back in London called Pandeli Rally writes to Kitchener to find out exactly what happened to Stuart. And as a result of Kitchener's response, the two of them start a, a friendship. Um, and Pandeli says to, to Kitchener that if he wants to make it, he's got to get supporters. He cannot do it alone. He's got to get people in high up places on his side. And Julie introduces Kitchener to Lord Salisbury, head of the Foreign Office at the time and Prime Minister. And that just- That'll help. Completely, absolutely completely. Um, so it is, yeah, yes, he had to prove himself on the ground, but at the end of the day, it was who he knew um, and developing that relationship. And I don't think Salisbury would have taken Kitchener under his wing as he did if he did not believe that Kitchener would deliver. Uh, you know, his, his whole reputation is on the line, um, Salisbury's. If Kitchener doesn't deliver, who's going to lose his job but the Prime Minister? Um, so I, there's a symbiotic relationship, I think, there that, that works really well. Um, and Salisbury just overrides various things uh, as, as he can. Also, Kitchener, Evelyn Wood and Kitchener hit it all. Um, Wood acknowledges Kitchener's bad points um, and all his, you know, his waywardness, calls his bluff on a number of occasions, but really understands Kitchener's strengths and the value that he can add. And so after um, the Zanzibar Commission and all that, that Salisbury had helped um, get Kitchener out of the, going to the war office and doing other punishments that Wolseley had lined up for him, such as counting- Wolseley was a piece of work, wasn't he? He oh, really absolutely. was. Absolutely. I can't say he's one of my favorites, but just based on my research for Kitchener, um, but I might change my mind later on as I did with Kitchener. Um, who knows? Um, so he ends up um, in um, with, with the battles after 1884-85. Um, and there, Wood actually fights for Kitchener to stay in command when Grenfell brings over the British army. 
Um, and apparently that's the first time that a local commander who is not British, um, and this is where it gets a bit confusing because Kitchener's a British citizen, um, but he's heading up the Egyptian army, not the British army. Um, so it's the first time that a local commander is allowed to command British troops. And the argument Wood and Salisbury put forward is that Kitchener had done all this planning, 10 years of planning um, and building railway lines and all that kind of thing. He knew, the, he knew the troops, he knew the forces, he knew the land. He had put the battle plan together. To now have somebody come in who had been out of the territory for about 10 years, because Grenfell had gone back to Britain before going back to Egypt, um, would have put the army at a disadvantage. And just to clarify, Anne, we're talking now about the war against the Mahdi yes. in Khartoum. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, we've now got to that whole process, which plays out over a number of years. Um, and this is part of Kitchener's methodical planning. Uh, you don't do things immediately. Um, and as we have at one of the, at the Battle of Hamid, uh, where Kitchener did something on the spur of the moment, he nearly lost his life. Um, and we see that again at Paderberg uh, in the, the South African 1899-1902 war, where he does something on the spur of the moment um, and it doesn't work out as everybody thinks it should. Um, the campaigns against the Mahdi are incredibly carefully planned. Um, and Kitchener, within all of that, um, he's, he's a firm believer that you don't go into an action unless you pretty much know you're gonna win. Um, which, I mean, makes sense for most things. But it's a good rule. It, it is a good rule. Um, but he, he pretty much did guarantee that. And he, he makes a comment at one point about he's really pleased um, and he dreads to think that if the Mahdi had the same level of equipment that his men did, what would actually happen? Um, because it, it was just such an unfair fight. And he wasn't happy with that. So before the, the final battle at Khartoum, he actually writes to the Mahdi or the Mahdi's son who was then in power and offers him terms of surrender um, before the battle to say, you know, just submit. Um, you don't want all these women and children to die. Um, and, we, and we can come to terms. And the Mahdi says no. And as a result of that, we end up in the battle where 10,000 plus um, are killed. This is Omdurman. Um, Omdurman, yeah, yeah. Um, thank you. So it's, you know, so there's this humanity side to him as well that comes through. Um, he's, part of this is he's also, he's playing on, um, again, the Islamic belief side in how he's writing and that. He had support from um, about 2,000 tribes, local tribesmen, which he'd managed to get for one of the battles at short notice because he attended Friday prayers with the community, um, you know, which I can't see too many British generals of the day going to Friday prayers and participating. Um, wow, so he would actually pray alongside the local yeah. tribesmen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that brought him... Um, support from tribes that weren't quite decided whether to support the, the Mahdi or, or the British. Um, and so he got them on side pretty much free of charge. 
so one could, you know, you can interpret his motives in different ways, but I think he, he genuinely did feel um, for the people and their beliefs. Other evidence of that is that before one of the other battles, um, I think it's Rasul Saar, um, which happens on Good Friday, he actually consulted with both his chief Muslim army officer um, to confirm that there wouldn't be a problem taking Muslims into war on a, on a Friday, um, which he was told was fine because the Prophet had actually, Prophet Muhammad had actually had fought a battle on a Friday, so that was acceptable. And he also checked with Hamilton um, from the Christian perspective because it was Good Friday. Um, and Hamilton said, you're releasing people from imprisonment. You can do that on Good Friday. So he got both Christian and Muslim blessing to launch that particular battle. Uh, which so he was very, it, in a way, very progressive. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's one of the things that really struck me in doing this research about him was his progressive nature. Um, and that comes through. Yes, he's a manipulative person as well. Um, in how he makes it work, but he's incredibly progressive. Um, and, you know, the word egalitarian um, just you know, kept coming to mind. Um, and that humanity, understanding of human nature and having to bring people with you was, was very strong. And there was a little bit of controversy, though, wasn't there, as I recall, after the Battle of Omdurman with regards desecration, desecration of the Mahdi's grave. Is that right? There was, um, and that, that's a bit of a, a mixed story. He never, he never did take the Mahdi's skull. There was a, a um, mention of that, um, but they did, the tomb was destroyed. Um, what Kitchener did do was have the body thrown into the river because, and that was within the Islamic keeping of the day um, because it, it, it would ensure that there was no place that um, where he could become a martyr, no space that you know could become a congregation place for for people following up. Um, in terms of the tomb itself being destroyed, um, it was a bit of a mixed thing, uh, but it was um, unsafe. the The whole infrastructure was crumbling because of having been attacked the way it was, um, and so destroying it. Um, stopped it from being a, a, a place of pilgrimage. Um, also was evidence of the, the Mahdi having been destroyed, but from a health and safety point of view, it prevented future deaths uh, because the building was going to fall in on itself anyway. Um, now, those are the two extremes. Um, and the truth, I think, is somewhere all in between that. Um, as as it often is. <laughs> as, it, as it often is, and I think it's a, I think it's a fair mixture of of the the two. Um, I think Kitchener, you know, he's he had paraded um, prisoners quite um, horrifically before, um, but that was within the culture of the day. You know, the the claim that Kitchener had all these dervishes murdered um, is is grounded in the sense that. Um, he didn't actually issue an order, but it was a case of a lot of the men would lie acting injured. Um, and if when medics, etc., went to pick them up, etc., they were then killed. 
So it was a case of kill or be killed, um, which, which accounted for that. Again, the other evidence um, to mitigate against his order to, to kill Mardi or kill dervishes was that he had medical um, provision in place, not enough, he did miscalculate on that front, but he, there were doctors available. They just couldn't cope with the numbers as well. Um, and he had taken the British Army to task for not having field, field dressings, first field dressings on them, um, and had sent them back to go and get supplies. Um, so he was very much in favor of keeping lives, but where need necessitated um, in terms of cultural beliefs and actions, he did what needed to be done um, in, in quite a cold, ruthless way, which I think you have to be at, at that level. Um, exactly. Yeah. Well, so after the Battle of Omdurman, which was obviously a huge success and the British victory in this war, I don't know the exact time frame, but I believe we had this, this run-in with the French in Sudan, this, this incident known as the Fashoda incident. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened and how Kitchener was involved and maybe helped to avoid a war? Yeah, um, it happens pretty much within weeks after Omdurman and Khartoum falling. Um, he's sort of whipped away from that because he's the closest to Fashoda. Um, and he's very, very clever here as well. Um, Marchant, the, the French commander, is, has come over from the north down to Fashoda and is going to claim the territory for France. Um, and Kitchener is very much, or the British are very much that it's, it's theirs. So Kitchener arrives with a contingent of the Egyptian army and Horace, I think it's Horace Smith Dorian, it's just slipped my mind, but he's, he rocks up with um, the Egyptian army. And he insists on the men all being in Egyptian uniform. Even the British that are there are all in Egyptian uniform. He's not there representing Britain. He's there representing Egypt. He organizes a discussion with Marchant on board one of the, the boats. Um, we've got, um, oh, his name has slipped my mind. Um, Beatty, Admiral Beatty, later on Admiral Beatty, is a very young, um, shipman at the time, and he has one of his boats supporting Kitchener down there towards Fashoda. A meeting on like his a, boat. Like a, a gunboat, a small gunboat. Gun yeah, yeah. Um, and he and Kitchener and Marchand meet on said boat and have a discussion. Neither of them wants to go to war. They realize how isolated they are. Kitchener has the better troops on site. Um, it's better to, you know, condescend and, and give in. Um, and they agree wording that goes back to Europe um, to allow a face-saving situation to happen in Africa and for the final decisions to be made by the politicians back home. And all the way through this, it's the Egyptian flag flying and Egyptian troops. Um, and I think if Kitchener hadn't done that, there would have been war. So we, we really see here then his diplomatic skills at play. Huge, huge. And I think that comes about because of his, you know, he knew the French culture from having been schooled there. He knew the Arab culture from you know, his time in, in Egypt, Sudan, as well as you know, the Turkish aspect or, or the Ottoman side. 
Um, so he was able to bring all of that into play um, over apparently a glass of champagne. <laughs> it's always the best way I find. <laughs> yeah, if only we could sort other problems out today like that. <laughs> So, so after he helped to, to bring the Fashoda incident, you know, to calm things down and then Britain and France, you know, managed to make agreements without coming, coming to blows. How did he then transition from his senior role in the Egyptian army back into the British army in time to head down to the Anglo-Boer War? Oh, more behind the scenes work. Absolutely. He ends up back in Britain for a, a bit of a break and uses that time very, very constructively. So this is before there's talk of, well, there's rumour of war in South Africa. It hasn't actually broken out yet. But he, while he's here in Britain getting all the accolades from Fashoda, um, he ends up um, taking a trip to Ireland where a certain Lord Roberts is in residence um, and has a conversation with Lord Roberts about any potential action in South Africa and ends up, um, and nothing more is said about that. Um, but he goes back to Egypt and with um, Black Week um, and Buller having suffered as he, he did, and they, the decision is to send Roberts out, um, Roberts asks for Kitchener to accompany him. And again, here we've got, um, I mean, Salisbury's no longer in power at, at that point. Um, but he's got the backing of Queen Victoria because in amongst all his um, socialising with the Prime Minister and also the Desperers, who he'd become friends with, um, he and Queen Victoria become very good friends as well. Um, and I think that's quite an interesting play out later on um, because Kitchener's friendship with the royal family stays um, and there's some work for somebody to do in terms of who the king favoured more. Hegel Kitchener in 1914-15. Um, but that, that's for another, another piece. But Kitchener is backed for going to South Africa by Roberts and Queen Victoria. And so um, back, in, back in Egypt, um, as Roberts is on his way down, I think something like the 20th of December or something, 10th of December, um, Kitchener gets notification to head back and to get to Malta and he meets up with Roberts at Malta and they travel down to South Africa together. Um, here again, Kitchener's rank is not very senior. Um, of all the people that Roberts chose, um, Kitchener's rank is very low um, and that obviously causes conflict with the officers already in South Africa who are in positions of command. Um, because Do we know now, what rank he was at this point? Was he was he a, a, ma a major general, or had he not even reached that level yet? Well, I don't think he'd even reached that level. He he was really? apparently promoted over forty two generals um, to get to this post. So he's in an acting position, and that's why Roberts pretty much regards him as his um, second in command. And it's only because Roberts is issuing the instructions through Kitchener that they are listened to. Um, so there's this, and, and so this is that conflict um, where Kitchener had proven himself as an able administrator soldier, but the military ranks hadn't kept up um, <laughs> because there was all the precedents, and um, you know, he, he'd been out of the British Army infrastructure 
and now he's moving in as in an acting capacity. Because I'm really fascinated now to find out once he arrives in South Africa, what happens and what does this teach us about him? Yeah, so South Africa, I mean, he's all the way through, he's really, well, up until Roberts leaves, um, Kitchener is running around as Roberts's messenger. He's not actually doing the chief of staff job um, that one would have imagined him to, to be doing. In fact, that role was almost non-existent. There was an intelligence agent, oh, head of intelligence, is it a Henderson, um, who is really taking on that major chief of staff role that technically should be Kitchener's. And he dies um, through age and illness quite early on. Uh, he shouldn't have been out on the battlefields, um, but that was his, his status uh, and, and very good at what he did. So the right person, just the wrong age. Um, and wrong circumstances. And Kitchener then picks up after, after that. With Roberts going, oh, we have Paderberg. Paderberg, very, very important. Um, Paderberg, Roberts is not well and deputizes Kitchener to take control. And Kitchener, in true fashion, on the ground, makes decisions as he had everywhere else. Um, with what he sees in front of him, and because he was so used to being the senior person, dictating and having things happen, he did the same at Paderberg with what were believed at the time to be disastrous effects. Um, the other part so, of it. I mean, is it, could you just sum up in sort of a paragraph or two uh, what, what, what happened at Paderberg and why, what, what it shows us? Yeah, I can't give you the exact detail because I'm not a, I don't do the military aspects of that. But my understanding is that the British suffered quite severely at, at Paderberg um, in a circumstance where they shouldn't have. Um, they were greatly outgunned by the Boers. Um, and he was, he was overriding um, orders that had gone out to British commanders. Um, and so they were they were taking their troops in one direction. He saw something happen and ordered them in the other direction without going through the commanding officer. Um, so I can just imagine the absolute chaos on the battlefield. Um, one of the comments is made at the time that Kitchener underestimated the um, the Boer forces, and yes, he did. Um, because if you think about it, not even six months. I think it's about six months before. He was in Egypt where he was fighting people with spears and lances. Um, and he was aware of this other technology, but he hadn't been aware of the extent to which it had got into the Boer army. He hadn't been able to study the Boer in the same way that he'd been able to study other military people, he, you know, other enemy he'd, he'd encountered. Um, so it was a baptismal fire in, in that sense. Um, but when you then read what happened subsequently, uh, it seems like Kitchener's bad decisions on the day were actually the right decisions in the big scheme of things. Um, because within a couple of days, the, a number of the Boers had surrendered and Britain had the upper hand, by which point Roberts was back in post. So I'm just going to interrupt Anne for a moment so that I can give you the discount code for her book, Kitchener, The Man, Not the Myth. When you order it via helion.co.uk, just insert the code, all in capitals, Kitchener2020 at checkout for 20% off. 
By the way, she was just talking about the Battle of Paderberg. If you're interested in that, then I will cover it eventually on the show. So stay connected for that. Anyway, let's get back to Anne. When Roberts leaves and there's a discussion as to who should take over, um, Kitchener's name is not there. Uh, and it's Roberts who writes in and says, um, Kitchener is your man. Despite everything, he is the best placed person to take command of this force. And Kitchener takes over in November 1900 as commander in chief of the, the forces in, in South Africa. Now, he takes over at a really difficult time, doesn't he? Because the, the conventional war is essentially over by this point. Is that right? And now he has this awkward guerrilla war to fight. How does, how does he do and what happens? And, and what does this show us about him? Um, yeah, Roberts had pretty much thought the traditional type of war was over, um, declared that everything was finished and it was just mopping up uh, operations. Um, we've heard we've heard that before a few times, haven't we? Yes, East Africa comes to mind in 1916, 17 too. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Iraq and Afghanistan, even more recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, never say mopping up exercises; they last forever. Anyway, um, Kitchener takes over, but even there, it's a bit vague because Roberts had issued instructions um, in terms of concentration camps. Um, scorched earth policy, etc., which Kitchener had endorsed, but he has to carry them forward. Roberts also leaves later than what he was anticipating because of family illness, uh, including his own. So there's this hiatus of whether of who is actually in charge because Roberts was supposed to have left a month earlier, but he's still in the country and he's still nominally in charge, but he's not really in charge. So that causes a bit of confusion. Once he's gone, this whole war, I mean, the whole nature of the war changes, the Boers have decided it's time to go guerrilla. Um, and Kitchener realizes this is going to be a long drawn out affair. Um, he continues with the scorched earth policy uh, and farm burnings, etc., and moving people into camps for not for the bad reasons that people tend to think, but rather because he's trying to shorten the war. Um, the, the woman being moved into camps was to safeguard them. And in fact, at the beginning, the Boer men were writing in to say thank you very much for protecting our woman. Um, later on, obviously, with the number of deaths it, it, and, and politics, it gets a different spin. But at that point, it is all done in good faith. The burnt, burnt earth policy, scorched earth policy, is to try and stop um, people being able to live off the land. And the blockhouse movement that he brings in is for part of that as well. There are cases where um, people were reprimanded for not burning properties, but there are also cases where Kitchener refuses to court martial a young chap for refusing to burn a farm um, because he understands all of that. Yeah, because he'd sort of seen it with his own eyes in other, other conflicts. Yeah, yeah, he, he knew um, you know, what, what it was all about. Um, but he had to find a way to bring the war to an end as quickly as possible. One should also mention here, I think, that the, the whole campaign in um, 
Sudan was the first time a British campaign had come in under budget. Uh, and for which Kitchener was really, you know, he, he got high praise for that. So he's very cost conscious and he's trying to reduce the costs of the war in, in South Africa as well. Um, he then ends up in an unenviable position in the sense that Milner, um, who is the high commissioner of the Cape uh, and sort of running the administrative part of the, the war, decides to go on leave and comes back to Britain for three to six months. And in that period, Kitchener is then responsible for the whole of South Africa, military and administration. Um, with Roberts having said that just the military side was too much for one person uh, when, when he'd gone, but Kitchener could cope with it. So add on to that now, you've also got the administration side, um, having to deal with all the Cape rebels and setting up new administration in the Transvaal and the Free State, uh, which has now been obtained uh, for, the, for the British. And Kitchener within this realizes, or is trying to move the camps under administrative um, responsibility. So it's got to really move to Milner's side. And Milner doesn't want it. And it takes a good number of months to convince Milner that the work is for the administration, not for the military. And it's at that point that we have all the high death rates come through. Typhoid had come in um, and within, the, and the, it was being dealt with. Partly it was because they, he hadn't realized how different where women were to Sudanese women. Um, so Kitchener wasn't very favorable towards women in the sense of having crowds of them around. He had very good relationships with individual women, but he didn't like crowds of women. In Sudan, um, he had gone against British policy and allowed camp followers to follow his forces. So, and the camp followers were the wives and mistresses of his men. Um, he saw the value of them because they supplied, they did all the cooking and looking after men, stopped all the rape and pillage that potentially happened and were a first line of defense. But what is significant for, for Kitchener um, is that these women were self-sufficient. They looked after themselves. They lived in close proximity to each other with no problems. So he transferred his knowledge of women living together like that to the concentration camps where it fell foul because were women, um, if you could see the smoke from the farm next door, you were too close. So were women were now brought together from being what a mile, two miles apart from each other uh, where you didn't have to worry about you know, hygiene, um, in the same way you have to if you're living compactly. Um, all of that came together um, in a confined space um, and very independent women living on top of each other with meager food sources, etc., meager medical supplies. Um, you're gonna, and also where you don't trust the people looking after you is gonna cause chaos. A lot of the Boer women didn't believe the, doc the British doctors were actually there to help them. They preferred their own traditional 
um, medications, etc., which didn't work well for things like typhoid. Um, in terms of the food side, there was a shortage of food, but no more so than for the, the troops on the, on the go. Um, eventually, Millicent Fawcett meets up with Kitchener to discuss the very issue. And she fully understands that um, you know, the army gets first call. But she does put in a request that she can have a, an extra carriage attached to all the trains with uh, food for the, the camps. And that is approved, no problem. So just remind me, sorry, who was Millicent Fawcett exactly? Millicent Fawcett, um, one of the famous suffragettes, um, she'd gone out about the time of Emily Hobhouse. So Emily Hobhouse's report makes it big into the press here in, in Britain. Emily is sent out as a commissioner of four to investigate what's really happening in the camps. She does her investigations and eventually asks for a meeting with Kitchener um, to discuss how to move things forward and to improve life. And Kitchener allows this very reluctantly um, because he doesn't really know how to deal with um, a woman in, in that capacity, but they have a very, very frank discussion by all accounts. Um, Emily writing um, that it was the most productive meeting she'd had with anybody of that level, including prime ministers. Wow, um, so I guess, that, I, guess, I guess that's a good compliment to Kitchener then. Absolutely, and I think in return, he invites them, he invites the four ladies um, to dinner. Um, which, which I think is quite something given the comments that he was making before actually meeting with them, which they had overheard. And, and, and I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but do, what do we know about his, uh, his personality? Was he an engaging, you know, dinner host? Was he fun? Was he known, you know, as a bit of a ladies man? What do we know about that side of him? Yeah, by all accounts, he was good fun. He had a, a very wicked sense of humor. Um, his gun dogs were called bang, shoot, aim. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, I think that says it all. Um, he used to play um, tricks on his, his, um, his, his, his guys, lads, acolytes, whatever you want to, to call them, his inner circle. Um, they, they spoke to him in ways, when you read the letters and that, they spoke to him in ways that you don't see others doing. Um, ladies absolutely wants to go into dinner with him. Um, he causes a social faux pas in India um, by taking the arm of the young woman he was talking to into dinner and not the most senior woman um, at, the, at the dinner party. Um, and his minions have to sort out that, uh, that aspect. <laughs> good old British India. Oh yes, but he, he is. He, I mean, I think he's a he's a pretty good looking man. Um, he, if you get him on a one to one and engaged, you know, he's he's good company, a good sense of humour. Um, he's his interests are quite wide ranging. He's an art. He, he's an artist. He does flower arranging, um, grows his own, you know, designs his own gardens, designs similar. Is an archaeologist. He set up the Cyprus Museum. Um, you know, is involved in digs in Egypt as well. So he's got a lot that he can he can talk about. Um, no, it's not just the military person, um, and I think that's quite appealing. 
And as I say, on a one-to-one, he's far more comfortable than, than in a group situation. Brilliant. And, and so we're right at the end of the Anglo-Boer War here. How instrumental was he himself in bringing the war to the end? And how did the war impact his career, either negatively or positively? Where to start on this one? Bringing the war to an end is crucial in the sense that already in 1901, um, Kitchener and Louis Boerta had met, met up with each other to discuss the terms of peace. Um, and this was when Milner was back in Britain. And Kitchener put proposals forward for bringing the war to an end then, which Milner refused. And obviously then the British government did as well. Um, and so the war then dragged on for another year with all the, the consequences. And it was again through discussions um, that the Boers, and, and obviously necessity from, from the Boers by that point, realizing that they're not going to get any further, um, that they agreed that they needed to go to the peace table. And those talks were only managed because of the work Kitchener did, I, I believe. Um, Kitchener had them brought to, had the Boer leaders, some of them, Boerta in particular, um, brought to Pretoria he was at, living at Melrose House at the time, um, and Hamilton had the house next door. And they cut a hole in the hedge between the two properties. The Boers stayed with Hamilton and then used this hole in the hedge to go and see Kitchener so that they could thrash out um, the final peace terms. Milner was not involved in that. Kitchener would liaise with Milner. And the whole idea was that the men didn't, the Boers didn't have to go out on the streets um, and be seen by the Pretoria public. Um, it could all be done very quietly behind closed doors. And as a result of that, um, Werther and Smuts were able to, well, Smuts was in the Cape, he was pulled up from the Cape. They were able to meet at Vereniging and discuss, thrash out the big issues. Kitchener at that point as well had declared local truces so that the Boer leadership could all come together. But the condition was that if the talks failed, war would resume as it was. So nobody was disadvantaged in, in that way. And that is, I think, is a very significant thing because Louis Boerter uses that at the end of the German Southwest Africa campaign in bringing the, um, the German force there to, to the peace table. So he learned a lesson. Absolutely. I think that the two men supposedly played bridge together back in 1901. Um, you know, we, we, we don't know. And apparently they were both Freemasons. Um, we haven't been able to prove when Louis Boerta became a Freemason, but uh, he was apparently a Freemason. Um, and that might have had an impact on their relationship as, as well. But the two men really did seem to hit it off. And that helped the discussions in, in 1902. Um, also the fact that Kitchener was saying, you know, the situation in Britain would be changing quite soon and it would change in the Boers' favour um, in terms of getting um, independence back. Um, and because of the way Kitchener had dealt with them throughout the war, they trusted him where they didn't trust Milner. The final document was actually signed a bit after time. And Kitchener was petrified that Milner was going to discount it because it was late, but he managed to delay Milner and to placate him 
Um, so we have that amazing image of all the Boer leaders around the table at Melrose House um, signing the peace. And I, I don't think it would have happened had Kitchener not played the role he did in bringing people together, having those veranda um, coffee conversations, uh, you know, that one-to-one that -one interaction um, with, with people he trusted and who trusted him. Um, so, and that was all part of the conflict between Milner and Kitchener. Their outlooks were so different. Milner, and, and their history goes back to 1882, back in Egypt. Um, Milner was very much a um, hard hitter. You know, we've got to completely destroy the enemy. Whereas Kitchener was very much a, you can't destroy the enemy. You've got to keep friends with them. Yes, you've got to show them that they've been beaten, but you've got to uplift them and keep them on side to keep peace in the future. Otherwise, yeah. you're just going to be wasting so much life and money. Could you kind of sum up then the next few years after the Boer War, where, where Kitchener stands after the close of hostilities and how we get to, you know, the Kitchener that we all think of, World War yeah. One? Can you kind of fill in that gap for us? Yeah, rather, rather quickly. Um, in some ways, um, he, in amongst all of this, he had been learning Hindustani, um, as you do while you're out in another battlefield, um, and had also made contact with Curzon, so that his next job was to the Indian Army uh, with Curzon as Viceroy. We won't go into all the detail there, but there's a huge big conflict. Um, I don't go into the conflict because it is so controversial and that would take another 20 odd years to, to research, to come up with a, you know, an argument. But what I look at there is what, it, what Kitchener takes out of it um, and what it tells us about his character. Um, and it is a very sad story because Kitchener and Mary Curzon are very good friends, Lord Curzon's wife. Um, she's an American. Again, little bits of um, character come out. He, on the 4th of July, he has Mary to dinner. Um, and she is ultra chuffed about this because she's finally having dinner with a British general on the 4th of July. And Curzon just couldn't understand that. Um, and she does a lot of mediation around the relationship between Curzon and, and Kitchener. Kitchener is also liaising with Mary about medical issues and how to improve medical support for Indians. Um, and she does a lot of the research on, on that front. He also sets up, um, he's busy with army reform, again, way ahead of his time. Um, he's setting up the um, military training school in, in India so that men don't have to come back to Britain, pay a huge amount of money uh, to go to Sandhurst, et cetera. They can train in, in India. Um, and he is also looking at ways to, um, get the Indian army to be able to work on two fronts at the same time in the sense of doing local um, border patrol and keeping the, the internal peace, but also preparing an army for global war. So he's already at that point seeing that the Indian army is going to have another role. And his whole restructuring of the regiments, etc., is with that in mind. And he's trying to circulate men so that they get experiences in different fields. Apparently, he also does experiment with a ski regiment. 
um, there are places in India where there's snow and he looked to have a contingent on skis, but that didn't quite work. But, you know, it's innovative. It's really interesting because George Morton Jack has written quite a bit about the Indian army, the social side, um, fighting in Europe in the, the second, in the, in the First World War. Um, and he picks up with what Haig was doing. He doesn't touch on what Kitchener did before. And it's really interesting seeing how much of what Haig was doing was almost repetition of what Kitchener had done before. Kitchener gets into quite a lot of hot water about the reforms he was making in India, but I think they were ahead of their time. He set up the Indian army to cope with whatever came their way and then ensured they didn't have to. And then very shortly, of course, they, they were part of one of the, the most destructive wars we've ever seen. And obviously Kitchener was a big, a big part of that at the beginning. Can you just explain his role at the start of World War I and why, why what, he, what he did was so important? Yeah, um, so Kitchener was technically, well, at that point was um, governor, viceroy equivalent of Egypt, happened to be on leave uh, in Britain as war was breaking out. He saw war was coming along and tried to get back to Egypt. He did not want to be in Britain for the war. Um, however, things worked in such a way that um, Asquith, with pressure from Molnar and um, uh, Leo Amory, um, who was a big behind the scenes player, convinced Asquith that they needed Kitchener in post. And Kitchener was brought back from the ship that he had already got onto at Dover to come back to, to London. Discussions took place. Kitchener insisted that his appointment would be as a soldier, same conditions. Um, so three years or the length of the war. Um, and he's there as a soldier in uniform, pretty much. He did not see himself as the civil servant head of the, the war office. The, the, it was a big gamble bringing Kitchener in. Um, because they needed somebody who could bring all these aspects of war or running a campaign together very rapidly. Kitchener had avoided the war office as much as possible. He never actually did a stint at the war office. Um, he reckoned he'd rather be a street sweeper. Um, or if he'd set up a rival organisation, it would take the war office three months to know uh, or to realise. So he had huge disdain. But what the Liberal Party, who had no time for him, I think had come to realise, was that here was a man who had such incredible organisation powers or abilities that he could bring things together. Um, he had the status of the hero. You know, Omdurman and avenging Gordon's death was still very high up. He had brought the Boer War, Second Boer War to an end. Um, and he, he was a celebrity of the day. You know, he, was, he was the poster boy. Before we, we even get to the, the recruitment poster, he was the poster boy. Um, and, and so that, even, even just from a publicity um, draw card point of view, having Kitchener as Secretary of State for War would be great. Um, but he brought those administrative skills together he knew different, he knew the various aspects of um, the empire and their military capacities. He'd studied in, in, in Germany as well. Um, he'd, you know, he'd had dinner with the Kaiser at one point. 
Um, he, he knew von Moltke's work backwards. Um, he'd served with the French army and he'd been out to virtually most of the Dominion areas. Um, so if you want somebody who's got his finger on the pulse. Of, he's of your the perfect day, choice. Perfect choice. And he's known to get things done when everybody else is dragging their heels and, you know, going into consultation about things. Kitchener just overrides things. Um, and, and, what that, did he, and what did he get done? Huge amount. The British Army would not have achieved what it did in 1914-18 had it not been for Kitchener at the beginning. He restructured or organised um, the administration. Uh, yes, he was controlling. He centralised where he had to. If he didn't trust somebody, he took on the reins. If he trusted you, as he did with um, as a Templar with the Air Force um, and a few others, he just let them go. Um, he also, railways was his big thing. There's a whole railway thing we haven't even touched on. Um, he, he was, Cohen's was very much told, get on and sort out the railways because they needed for ambulances, you know, getting people out as well as getting people in. Um, medical front, he got doc, uh, a politician by the surname of Lee to go and in, undertake investigations in Europe and to feed back directly to him, not to um, the, the hierarchy, so that he could then put things in place working with the hierarchy. The medical corps in the First World War underwent a radical change at the beginning of the war, and Kitchener was instrumental in supporting that. Um, innovation around tanks, huge. Um, the, the big story is that he was quite disdainful of them. Um, that was only for publicity purposes because he didn't want the Germans to hook onto it early, which is what Kip, um, Churchill was doing with all the publicity. Um, air warfare, Kitchener was a forerunner in that. Um, he'd instructed uh, men to go and put 64 planes flying in formation before they'd even done two kind of thing. Um, He'd been up in a plane in Egypt as well. So apart from his balloon experience in the Franco-Prussian War, he'd been up in a little plane in Egypt. Um, so could see how all of this would work. Set a challenge for one of the guys to go and do this. Um, and then went out to, to Farnborough or somewhere to see how things were going. And they had 12 planes flying in formation. And Brilliant. he was told you, you could do it. Um, you know, so where he trusted somebody, he gave them free reign. By 1915, Kitchener pretty much had everything in place. His thing about the Territorial Army wasn't that they weren't competent. It was because they needed proper train. They needed additional training to be able to cope with the Western Front scenario. Um, he also had done a phenomenal amount in terms of weapons, had put in orders for weapons. In fact, a lot of the accolade that Lloyd George takes for the arrival of new weapons were orders that Kitchener had placed. The big difference between what Lloyd George did and what Kitchener did is Lloyd George would only, no, Kitchener, sorry, would only use bona fide legitimate weapons manufacturers because he had experienced so many of his men being injured and killed with defunct weapons on the battlefield back in Egypt and in the Boer War, presumably, too. Um, and that was unnecessary loss of life. 
So if weapon manufacture did not stand up to standard, they weren't accepted. Lloyd George took whatever. And as a result of that, it, we, at the Battle of the Somme, um, we hear of huge numbers of men being injured, apart from by the German ordinance, by their own malfunctioning ordinance. Kitchener also didn't believe in the bombardments, interestingly. Um, and he said he would have fought the war differently. Sadly, he didn't say how he would have fought the war differently. Um, but he did, he was very adamant that the men on the ground had to stay in control. And he, and this is part of his downfall because he didn't send out men to Gallipoli that Hamilton was asking for because it would have meant a restructuring of the forces, the commanding forces in Europe. And for Kitchener, that was the worst thing you could do to an army was to disrupt the order of command. So when an opportunity came up where you could make those adjustments, he did, but that was too late for Gallipoli. So by 1915, Kitchener's job was done. He wasn't a political standing anymore for the politicians and there's the whole maneuver to get him out, um, which happens with him being sent out to the Dardanelles, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can just quickly sum up those those sort of last months of his life then and, and then tell us how, how he died and, you know, what the discussion points are around that. Yeah. Um, I think it's very, very sad, the, the last months of Kitchener's life. Um, he realised that the, his job was done. Um, and so they were trying to keep him out of Europe for as long as possible. Uh, Robertson was brought in as Chief of Imperial Staff. Um, and he and Robertson got on very, very well and got a working relationship, which really annoyed the politicians um, because that you know, scuppered what their plans were. They tried to keep him out in Greece, etc. Um, and Kitchener wouldn't have that. His job was back in Europe. Um, and he was going through this period of trying to work out what his role was. And that was part of, I think he, he was moving towards an ambassadorial, ambassadorial role which is partly that why he was going out to Russia. Um, Lloyd George was supposed to have gone out to Russia, but then it was felt that Kitchener would be the better person to do so. Um, and it was, again, his standing, his status. He could talk militarily to the armed forces, but he could also be the diplomat when, when needed. Um, and I don't, well, he couldn't speak Russian as far as I know, but French was- the uh, he'd, have, he'd, have, he'd have learned it within two weeks. Oh, I tell you, um, he, but he spoke French and French was the, the international language of the day. And that was another problem between him, Haig, and Lord French, and General French, Guild Marshal French, um, because Kitchener spoke to the French in French, not in English, and they had to have translators. But in Russia, he would have been able to communicate in French, no problem, because the, the royal family, military senior guys would have spoken French as well. Um, but sadly, the, and accidentally, by all accounts, I haven't been able to prove the conspiracy theories, and that's a whole other book in itself, um, which others have worked on. Um, the ship hits a mine uh, off Orkney um, and goes down within about 12 minutes. Um, Kitchener goes down with it. I think only 12 men are rescued. Um, one could wonder... Um, you know, why he didn't try and save himself. Um, 
he apparently also had gone to put on his great coat. That is one of the stories. Um, he, Probably not the best thing to wear while swimming, I should think. No, but also I think about it, it's June, so it's fairly warm outside in the Northern Hemisphere. It's one of the warmer periods we, we have up here. Um, and he goes down to get his great coat and put it on. It's going to make you sink. So I, I have a sneaking suspicion that he realized that this was an opportunity. His main job was done. Um, he was on ship with what, 600 odd men, um, you know, who most of them were going to lose their lives. What kind of life was he going to have if he survived? Um, and by all accounts, having spoken to members of the family who I met after I did the book, um, they don't think he would have coped very well. With the family stories they know, they don't think he would have coped very well knowing that he was one of the few survivors of that ship and that the only reason that ship was sailing as it was was to take him to Russia to do a job. Um, and I don't like, you know, it's, it's almost saying he gave up on life. Uh, but in a way, it's a sacrifice he made for his country. Um, you know, making that decision to go down and to go down stoically. With having lived so long with this man, at least, you know, uh, in terms of your research. Yeah. What, what, what would be your conclusions about, about him? What have you learned from writing this book and, and what would you like to share? I think it's be true to yourself. Don't take things at face value, go and dig. And one of, one of the quotes, I, I just, yeah, um, it, it sums it up in a way. Um, it wasn't by him, it was by Hamilton, but I could see Kitchener going with this. It was, and it was about the suffragettes and women wanting the vote, about not putting yourself on a pedestal because women were far more powerful before they put themselves on the pedestal. Um, and that for me sums up Kitchener. If you put yourself up into a position of power or into a position of strength, you can only go, you can only fall, but you can actually do so much good on the sidelines and out of the limelight. Good advice there for anyone, I think. If you liked that episode, then please subscribe and also consider signing up for the mailing list over at redcoathistory.com. When you do, you'll receive a free ebook all about the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. In a couple of weeks, you'll be pleased to hear my episode on the battles of 1813 and 14 in the peninsula, i.e. the end of the war, will finally be out and we'll be finishing the narrative of that amazing conflict. Keep in touch, guys, and see you soon.